I want to tell you about a new podcast that just launched, and it is doing much good in reviewing and discussing cases concerning missing persons of color and the LGBTQ community. If you enjoy our podcast about missing persons, you will enjoy the Missing Minority Project podcast as well. The Missing Minority Project podcast is available on iTunes and all podcast directories. The podcast is released every other week and covers a new case each episode. Historically, the mainstream media ignores these cases, and these individuals have gone missing deserve much more awareness, and the Missing Minority Project podcast does just that. They give the voice back to the individual and to the families and unravel the mysteries of the missing and forgotten, one podcast at a time. They are committed to telling the stories of the missing and passionate about bringing them home. I urge you to check them out at missingminorityproject.com. On September 2nd, 2010, at 11.20 p.m., a call is placed to 911 notifying operators that someone had shot themselves at 4700 Sherlock Place in St. Augustine, Florida. Within minutes of police arriving, the tragic scene is quickly determined to be a suicide. Within months, the medical examiner would flip-flop on the manner of death from suicide to homicide and back to suicide again, all the while unable to answer simple questions. Police determined that it was a suicide from the start, did not collect, handle, or even test evidence. In fact, the entire investigation was virtually non-existent. They did not need to conduct an investigation as suicide was already a predetermined cause of death. A year later, Under pressure and to reassure the public that his office had conducted a fair investigation, the sheriff calls in the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the FDLE, to conduct an independent review. Confident that one law office investigating another law office would result in positive results, the sheriff is upset when things spiral out of control. The investigation is never fully completed, and allegations swirl that lead to dismissals and formal complaints. Lawsuits are brought up on misconduct charges. The law, both local and state, are at the mercy of what appears to be complete and utter incompetence, or complete and utter corruption at the highest level. It tears the community apart, and it tears a family apart. The victim, Michelle O'Connell, age 24, and mother of a four-year-old girl. The boyfriend who called 911, Jeremy Banks, a deputy sheriff for St. John's County. As we delve into this case, you will know that this is not an unsolved mystery. It is rather an unresolved mystery. 
Either you will believe Michelle O'Connell committed suicide, or you will believe Jeremy Banks, a deputy sheriff, committed murder, and the police department covered the entire affair. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World Season 2, Episode 8, The Unresolved Mystery of Michelle O'Connell's Death, Part 1. placed by Sheriff Deputy Jeremy Banks on September 2nd, 2010, at 11.20. We will go back to this 911 call, one of the key pieces of evidence in this case, and dissect it line by line. As the 911 operator called for first responders, Jeremy's colleagues were notified. Officers he worked with arrived on the scene first, knowing that one of their own was either distraught with grief or implicated in the shooting of his own girlfriend, Michelle O'Connell. An officer quickly entered the premises and found Michelle O'Connell laying on the floor. Jeremy Banks' service revolver near her, and Jeremy himself holding her. Jeremy was told to remove himself from the room and follow another deputy outside. Inside, another police officer searched for a pulse and found one. He immediately began CPR and continued to try to resuscitate Michelle until paramedics arrived. But it was too late. Michelle finally succumbed to the gunshot wound to her face. Jeremy Banks was observed to have been intoxicated and mentioned that they had been arguing just moments before Michelle was packing her belongings and the relationship between the two was apparently over. Jeremy indicated that he had been drinking, and they had argued, and that they had agreed to separate. As Michelle was packing to leave, Jeremy went into the garage and sat on his motorcycle, he indicates. That is when he heard a pop and said he immediately recognized it as a gunshot. He said he raced into the house and heard another gunshot. He grabbed his cell phone and called 911 while kicking in a locked door to discover Michelle bleeding on the floor. Officer Maynard escorted Jeremy Banks out of the house and says, quote, All of a sudden, he started growling like an animal. With his fists, Mr. Banks pounded dents into a police car. Another deputy, Wesley Grizzold, grabbed Banks by the arm and said, quote, I don't care if you're intoxicated or not. You better sober up. Banks was huddled with his friends and colleagues, including his stepfather, a deputy sheriff from another county, when investigators asked to speak with him about what had occurred. 
Banks was escorted into a police cruiser and interviewed by Detective Jessica Hines. Meanwhile, inside the house, another detective scanned the tragic scene. Within minutes, they returned with a conclusion. Suicide. Inside the cruiser, Banks gave his account of what had happened. With his girlfriend laying dead inside his home, the death coming at the hands of his service revolver, he and the interviewing detective laugh and joke about beer. All right, this is Detective Hines. It is officially September 3rd at 1.23 in the morning. Um, Jeremy, I'm here with Jeremy Bowles. Jeremy, tell me about tonight. Where, uh, tell me where, where, where you at? What where, where, where do you guys have going on? We, uh, we're at the amphitheater okay. for the concert that went on. And uh, we argued a little bit there. We, you know, argued a little bit earlier today, but nothing terrible. Just we were both fed up with each other's bullcrap that we've been going, we've been dealing with. We've been together a year and some odd months, I guess a month now, but um, you know, we were at the show, we were, I enjoyed the show, she enjoyed the show from what I understand, and in the car, we were talking about it, we had decided that we were going to break up, she was going to move out, we came home and we weren't arguing, we got home, we got home and we, we talked about it, we just said, you know, enough's enough, we've been fighting, we're done, Detectives were so certain in their judgment that Michelle had killed herself that they never really tested the forensic evidence collected after the shooting. 
nor did they interview her family or friends who would have told them that she was ecstatic over a new full-time job with benefits, including health insurance for her daughter. The family would have also noted that Michelle had told them months previous that Jeremy Banks was abusive and that she feared that one day he would go too far. Michelle's brother, who was also a deputy sheriff, was notified of the suicide, and after the initial shock, he asked that his keys and his weapon be confiscated because he felt he knew what had really happened and did not want to do anything irrational. Within hours, the crime scene was scrubbed. Michelle's body was taken for examination and scene abandoned, with critical evidence either not accounted for or not even tested. The O'Connell family believed that the sheriff's office, investigating one of its own, had blinded itself to the possibility that the shooting was a fatal cause of domestic violence. Because detectives concluded so quickly that the shooting was a suicide, investigators failed to perform the police work that is standard in suspicious shootings, including collecting and testing all available evidence and canvassing neighbors. In every death investigation, it is common practice to suspect homicide until proven otherwise. The two lead detectives on the case had worked just three homicides between them, and one supervisor involved in the case had been disciplined for an inept investigation of an attempted murder, the records show. In this case, the investigation was seriously flawed by police, by medical examiners and prosecutors, and there are some that believe that this was a conspiracy and the flaws deliberate as the police were investigating one of their own. Sheriff Shore called Mr. Banks a fine young man, stigmatized for life. Quote, This case, the sheriff wrote, has been and always will be a suicide. No matter what evidence would be brought up, the conclusion was concrete, facts be damned. But some officers weren't so certain of the conclusions made. Quote, I'll just say it. When I first walked into that room, the first thought that went through my mind was, this is not good for Jeremy, said Sergeant Scott Beaver, who initially took charge of the scene. We need to document the scene as much as possible, he says, because I felt there would be questions later on. At his direction, an officer took photographs that show the gun, a Heckler & Koch 45 caliber pistol on the ground, just inches from Mrs. O'Connell's left hand, suggesting that she would have used her weaker hands to shoot herself. Curiously, the gun's tactical searchlight attached to the barrel was on. The photos also show an unexplained second bullet buried in the carpet several inches from her body. Quote, I mean, I was in the homicide unit for a few years and it didn't add up, says Sergeant Beaver. But I didn't do more investigation into this to see why things were like they were. Detective Jessica Hines said she found nothing to suggest anything other than suicide, even though officers admitted that they did not attempt to investigate the scene thoroughly. Though investigators collected the gun, clothing, and other evidence, they never tested it for fingerprints, DNA, or gunshot residue. 
Officers also failed to canvass neighbors, failed to file required reports on what officers had seen that night, failed to download Mr. Banks' cell phone data, or collect and test one of his shirts he wore that night, and failed to isolate and photograph Mr. Banks before he was interviewed. Investigators also failed to investigate the last known photograph of Michelle O'Connell and Jeremy Banks taken that night at a concert. The photo will be available on our Facebook page for you to examine. In the photo, we see Michelle smiling and apparently having a good time, in contrast to Jeremy Banks' sour demeanor. Officers would also note that the clothing Jeremy Banks had been wearing just hours previously in the photograph were not on his person. In fact, the shirt in the photo went missing altogether. Officers could not locate it, and Banks did not specify what he had done with the shirt. An undershirt was noted later, however, to have several drops of Michelle's blood on it. Banks could not recall how or why Michelle's blood was on his undershirt, and apparently this piece of evidence was ignored by detectives. And just two days into the investigation, the medical examiner concluded, after doing an autopsy on Michelle's body, that indeed she had taken her own life by shooting herself in the mouth with Jeremy Banks' service revolver. The O'Connell family could not believe it and questioned the quick and conclusive investigation. Lieutenant Bradley, the sheriff's representative, reassured the family that the conclusions were based on fact, but he was confronted by Christine O'Connell, Michelle's sister. Christine felt that there was more to the story and told Lieutenant Bradley she believed Michelle was a victim of domestic violence. Christine indicates that Michelle came to her house the day previous and was so scared that she was leaving Jeremy Banks. She indicated she warned Michelle not to go to the concert with Jeremy. On the night of Michelle's death, she told officers this information, but they did not take a statement. Christine tried to make an official statement to Lieutenant Bradley, but he declined and told her the information was of no use and it would just be merely hearsay. Other testimony was ignored and statements not taken. Christine indicates that months prior to Michelle's death, she had called her sister to indicate she was bleeding vaginally and that Jeremy had placed her into a martial arts move and was very physical with her. Christine said Michelle feared that reporting it would cause her trouble and those of her family. Christine O'Connell said there were other incidents that went unreported for fear of causing trouble for Mr. Banks and for her relatives who worked at the sheriff's office. On one occasion, two family members said Michelle told them that she had come home to find Mr. Banks masturbating to a cell phone picture of a former girlfriend. Then, she said, he smeared semen on her face and hair. Mr. Banks denied the latter part of the story, the records show. And about a month before the shooting, an argument suddenly turned very physical where Jeremy Banks performed a leg sweep on Michelle that caused injury. Quote, She was afraid of him and Alexis was afraid of him, says Christine. Christine was concerned that the two were going to a concert together that fateful night, but was relieved to find that Michelle's brother Sean was going with them. At the concert, Sean noted that Jeremy was pissed off and suggested that he switch spots with Jeremy and sat in between them. He said Michelle was enjoying herself and having a good time, while Jeremy appeared distant and angry. Investigators never interviewed or took an official statement from Sean. 
Investigators also failed to recognize that Michelle's own mother went to her place of employment, the police department, just weeks prior to the shooting to speak to a counselor. I went to a counseling through the sheriff's office. I said, my daughter's being abused. My granddaughter's being abused. Well, we can't do nothing about Michelle, but we'll take care of Alexis. And I, and I said, okay. And then, then a couple days later, Michelle's dead. Michelle's mother, Patty, then asked her son, Scott O'Connell, who was a deputy himself, for assistance. But she states he indicated he could not help the situation. Scott O'Connell would later deny that his mother asked him for assistance in regard to Jeremy Banks being abusive towards Michelle. Twelve days after the shooting, Jeremy Banks was called into the station to wrap things up and conduct a concluding interview. In the recorded interview, it is noted that Jeremy sits, not in the detective chairs, but in the chair assigned to those accused of crimes. Jeremy and the interviewee laugh, and Jeremy is sat in one of the comfortable police chairs. It may be telling about the choice of initial seating, and telling also of the reassigned seating, and also strange that Banks would be jovial just 12 days after his girlfriend apparently shot herself in the face with his weapon. But that isn't what is so surprising during the interview. Jeremy Banks revealed he had stolen the police reports and investigative notes from the department and had read them over to familiarize himself with what the police had uncovered and what they were investigating. And when he makes this astonishing admission to the officer conducting the interview, they don't even question it. It's just procedural. Get the interview on record to satisfy some internal bureaucracy and conclude once again that this was just a case of suicide and nothing more. Awesome. Healthy spinach here in office. <laughs> you know, I never saw her. She actually shot herself. I didn't see any wounds. I didn't see an exit wound. I didn't see anything. I just saw her lips were already bleeding and there was a lot of blood. And I got. I've already read the report, I know I probably shouldn't have. But. I just wanted to know what was done on the other side. This wasn't Banks' first time being interviewed by fellow officers inquiring about his conduct. Banks was just four years in the force when the shooting took place at his home. But previous to the shooting, he had been involved in an internal investigation into his conduct. He admitted that he had not had the best reputation while in the law enforcement field. During an internal affairs investigation, whereas Banks was brought up on charges for making obscene gestures while in uniform, he told internal affairs officers, quote, I was looked at as a young punk, just cocky, just full of myself, end quote. The only other time he was reprimanded, however, was in regards to the Michelle O'Connell shooting. He was told he should have secured his service revolver, and that in the future, he should be more careful with his weapons. Crime scene photos show two long guns leaning against the wall in Mr. Banks's house. Although departmental policy requires that weapons be secured, Mr. Banks told investigators that he sometimes dropped his gun belt on the floor after work. He had guns everywhere, 
said Michael Plott, a deputy who once roomed with Mr. Banks. I told him he had to keep the guns locked up in his room when my kids were there. In the case of Michelle's shooting, she had apparently used his service revolver to shoot herself in the mouth instead of any of the other guns about the house. It is curious to note, however, that this particular revolver was holstered in a retention holster. A retention holster is designed to keep a gun in its holster. It is effective in maintaining the gun in the holster during a foot pursuit, a scuffle, and if a suspect decides to reach for your weapon and use it against you. Retention holsters are also designed so that persons unfamiliar with it would not be able to pull the weapon out of the holster and use it. Michelle apparently knew the complexities of the holster, but yet, according to police, did not know how to shoot the weapon, as indicative of the first shot that missed her face entirely and lodged into the carpet. She then, according to police, turned on the top-mounted tack light for better precision. And with this precision in mind and not wanting to miss again, she used her weak hand, her left, to finally shoot herself, falling down backwards. See how ridiculous this sounds? But it gets more interesting. The gun, handled daily by Jeremy Banks, did not have one single piece of DNA evidence on it. Researchers indicate that Michelle's DNA was the only one found on the weapon. Jeremy Banks could not explain why this DNA miracle occurred. Investigators brushed it off as a mystery. Others believed that the gun was washed and then placed on Michelle's hands to not only provide fingerprints, but also DNA evidence that she had fired the fatal shot. Next is the curiosity of the bullet casings. Two shots were fired, apparently in different manners, one into the carpet next to Michelle and one into her mouth. Investigators and medical examiners concluded at the time that Michelle had turned the gun upside down and held it with her left hand to fire the shots. The casings, which are ejected from the gun, were not found where they would be if this had occurred. The casings, both of them, were found in the corner of the room on the opposite side of the ejection chamber. And if that isn't magical enough, consider that the way they describe Michelle holding the weapon in her left hand with her palm covering the ejection chamber altogether. The theory is extremely flawed, but this would only be a minor inconsistency for what is to be uncovered by an independent investigation and independent autopsy. Join us on part two of Unsolved Mysteries of the World, season two, episode nine, the unresolved mystery of Michelle O'Connell's death. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links, and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you, or someone you know, will have a solution to this mystery. 
This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Madia Cupelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler.